I did want to read one, if you don't mind. No. Because I wanted to read one, because um, we we've, we often do a cold open before I do like an introduction. Sure. And so I found this one, and it was it was a short one, and I I enjoyed it. And um, since we're we're actually coming up on the on a on a big anniversary, I thought um, I would read this. So this is um, from Jacobo uh, de Turco, uh, a novel in verses. Jacobo. Jacobo. Uh, hot Hispanic H. Hot right? hot Hispanic H. Jacobo de Turco, a novel in verses, uh, by Philip Banowski. This is, a, uh, this is one called 9-11. Captain Wells watched the tower's geyser groundward on TV. Hands quick to catch could not, not even dust. Now a negligible burn infects his shoulder, as fatal as flat feet to a green beret. Was it that fucking bird, my, little wooden can- my, <clears throat> my, my wooden little candle that cannot fly but only burns? Me? Nuestra Senora, he said. Who said? Nostra Senora. Heal this burn and turn me to a daring puma, bird of prey, Tupac Amaru. In the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines. In the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, this is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. This is Rob in the Highlands Bunker Studio. we got a full house tonight. We have super producer Carl on the knobs. Uh, we have great friend, comrade, and patron. And uh, you'll remember him from episode 100 of the Highlands Bunker Podcast, Bertram Monitz. How you doing, Bert? And uh, the author of Jacobo the Turco, a novel in verses. Uh, he's an activist. He has a very interesting story. Um, and uh, we're going to get into his poetry as well, uh, Philip Anowski. Philip, thanks for coming in. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, I was. Um, I think I told you. You know, we we excerpted uh, two poems from the book in Delaware Call, and we do a bunch of different stuff in the call. So I had no idea how it was going to be received. Some stuff gets like no, you know, I, I get no comment on. Some of them are, you know, kind of lukewarm, and I just didn't know because we hadn't done anything like that before. And I got several like people who are really into it. Um, I think I shared one with yeah, you on another yeah. blog. So I, it was really cool. And, and um, yeah, thanks for coming in to talk about it. It's great. My pleasure, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. I, I start these, um, as I was saying, like about asking people where they grew up, what it was like, and how it might have informed um, you know, their choices and, and instructed them as they came to activism or politics or, or their art. Um, but you specifically have uh, an, an incredible story, I think, um, and a lot of stuff to sort of interrogate. Um, so, where did you grow up? What was it? What was it like? And um, and and sort of uh, where you where you touch with the art bug early, um, and and how did that sort of lead you into your your early adulthood? Okay. Oh well, I grew up everywhere. Uh, I was a Navy brat. So my fa- my father was in the U.S. Navy, and we traveled around all over this pla- all over the place. Um, and that kind of made an impression on me because, you know, every two or three years we'd be moving. I went to about 13 different schools and, uh, you know, I was always a kind of an outsider. So I always had a, a, a way of looking at things from, you know, from the corner uh, a little bit, uh, sort of recognizing that everybody, everybody's just a little tragic comic. Everybody, there is no one way of life that everybody has to live or should live, you know? So that, that kind of, shaped me somewhat. Um, the art bug, 
uh, I mean, you never know where you're going to get this stuff. But um, when I uh, I moved to Hawaii at one point, and that was that was nice. But um, I went for a while. I went to this uh, private school before they managed to get me over there in, in Pearl Harbor School, an enormous school. But um, at this school, you had to you had to bring a poem every Wednesday, you know. And so, you know, what did I know about poems? So the only, only thing I had was this little book of poems by a guy named Don Blanding who wrote these sappy poems about palm trees and hula dancers and, you know, and the trade winds and stuff like that. And so I would bring these in. And finally he, he, he said, uh, yeah, that's all great, Phil, but bring something else. So uh, I got a neighbor across the street. I asked him if he had a book of poetry. And he had uh, um, Shropshire Lad by A.E. Hausman. You familiar with Shropshire Lad? Mm-hmm. Have you ever been to Braden Hill? No, but I've been to Shropshire. You've been to Shropshire. Okay. Is that good enough? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. In summertime on Braden, the bells, they sound so clear. Round both the shires, they ring them and in steeples far and near a happy noise to hear so it's so i you know that's all i knew of poetry then so i read that and, and he's he, he's a wonderful poet i mean he's he's highly crafted um, pretty sentimental you know he was a he was a gay latin teacher you know turns out in the, in the 19th century and he writes about it he writes a little about imperialism and all that in a kind of an indirect way um, and so, you know, that was there. But then, of course, you know, when I was 12, I read, uh, I am a, I am a, um, uh, a fugitive from a chain gang. And this was a, a, a book about a fellow who just went through all kinds of crap where he escaped from a chain gang. And then he, he, he wrote his book about it and then they threw him back in jail. And it was just like back and forth. It was miserable. And then Paul Mooney made a really terrific movie about it. And uh, and that kind of like hit me that wow, there's really cruelty and evil in this world, you know. Um, so th- those things kind of m- mixed, and of course I also read, you know, adventure stories, uh, you know, sea travel stories about boys on ships at sea. And wouldn't you know, I ran into, uh, uh, you know, the Polish Brit. Um, my the name I'm blocking. <laughs> Yeah, the Polish Brit. Uh, um, Boris you know, Heart of Darkness. And all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Joseph Conrad, excuse me. Oh, Joseph Conrad. Yeah, yeah Joseph yeah, yeah, Conrad. Yeah, yeah. I should have so known we were talking about... I think uh, I read Youth yeah. and uh, Typhoon and stuff like that, which is probably more adventure than the kind of social pol- politics he had. And then somebody gave me a copy uh, of the two novellas, uh, Heart of Darkness and... Uh, the Secret Sharer, and actually The Secret Sharer impressed me a lot more than Heart of Darkness at the time. But what really impressed me was that, like, the language was just so magnificent, you know? The guy, I mean, that it was, you know, I had to look up a lot of words, but I just knew they were all really put together well. So all that kind of stuff impressed me very, very early, at a very early age. So you had both, uh, you had, you were both well-read, or at least reading enough to start seeing that there was different ways to tell these stories, different things happening, different ways to comment on the world. Uh, but also just from being in different places, sort of looking at being able to like 
drop down into a different scene and be in Hawaii and, and be overseas and be in different cities and stuff yeah, like that. Exactly. And be able to get something out of it, though, and be sort of curious in that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I could never be, you know, I couldn't be quite a part of that culture. And so, you know, maybe I would easily build a, a kind of critical notion of that culture uh, just because I was sort of an outsider. Sometimes it was a very unpleasant kind of sense of being an outsider. Other times I, I got along really well. I had a great time, you know. I mean, not on, not on the other hand, I was a fairly neurotic kid, you know, and uh, so there I was always troubled too. And so, uh, you know, that, that's, that's loads of, of, uh, of uh, material to, to pull up and, and kind of incorporate into whatever you're, you're doing, you know. Yeah, I think that I'm always fascinated with like I can understand that, but the, the difficulty is actually pulling that together and 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 doing it in a productive way and making sense of it. You know, just that that stress or that that way of thinking uh, and being neurotic, uh, but being able to to, to sort of uh, direct that and focus that at something as an outlet. That's the trick. Yeah, that took a while. Yeah, that's the that trick. That took a while. I've written tons of awful poetry. You know, well, I, um, I have a little treat for everybody later. Um, uh, we'll talk about juvenilia and, and and just people working stuff out. It's going to be fun. The last ten or fifteen minutes, we're going to have we're going to have a good time. Trust me. Trust me. <laughs> so don't go away. Don't go. You can't. We're all locked in here. So um, how I, I I know that you spent uh, thirty or more years uh, at the auto plant. That's right. How how did you come about um, coming back to this area and 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 working in car manufacturing and like what are the things you you did what was it what was it like um in in the context of obviously you sort of observing different things and different people and, and time going by but also i'm interested in your relationship because we share similar politics your relationship with uaw and what it was like to be in a union with um you know all of those people at, the, at a time when that actually meant something. Well, uh, yeah, I wrote a book about that too. It's called Auto Plant, um, and uh, you know, it's like I, you know, I went to work there because I needed the money. I was married, I had a kid, and uh, you know, I needed to make needed to make a living. And so, you know, I wandered into the auto plant. Um, it was, uh, I mean, I, I really, I, I hated a lot of the time. You know, it was it was it's difficult work. You work your freaking ass off. Uh, you know, I mean, I've damaged myself in ways that I'm still feeling today. I'm, you know, arthritic hands, uh, you know, for doing things like beating steel with a steel hammer. You know, it's like steel handle, steel hammer, steel, bang, bang, bang. And, and that causes all these little fractures and helps to wear away, you know, the cushioning material in your in your joints. So, you know, and I've got a bad shoulders and all kinds of shit, you know. So it was, it was physically difficult. And, uh, and the atmosphere was, uh, took some getting used to. Uh, because uh, folks basically, you know, in order to pass the time, they basically gave, basically gave each other a hard time. And, you know, you, you'd see some people who really did it in earnest, you know, because they were just sadistic bastards. And you see other people that, that kind of had to just do it artificially because you have to throw it back as good as you get, you know. And it has to be obscene. and has to be. It's the culture. It's the shop culture. Well, it is. Yeah. So, well, I don't know it's shop culture, but it's, you know, everybody's always being tested. Everybody, it's, everybody's trying, 
you know, it's a competition and everybody's trying to protect themselves. And so you have this escalation of this tough guy, macho uh, atmosphere. And, uh, and it's also, you know, I mean, it's, it's really interesting too, because you know, we had a lot of Appalachian culture in, in that plant. And I, I really got to like uh, most of these folks. Um, you know, and you learn, you learn that working class life is often a life that's been full of a lot of lot of hardship, all kinds of uh, uh, economic and psychological and social hardship, and so every everybody's like traumatized, and everybody's you know uh, basically doing everything they can to traumatize each other. Uh, so you know, a lot of my friends on the left, especially the academic left, they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> you know, I mean, they talk about the working class. And, uh, you know, they wouldn't survive very long with the working class, and they would be kind of outraged about how on PC the working class is. Uh, but in concrete ways, uh, from time to time, they, they come together. They, they sort of know who, who the enemy is, and they're willing to, to stand by each other and do things. Other times, it's like people are like flies on shit. You know, when the boot comes down, everybody scatters except for that one organizer who's got his got shit up his nose. You know, <laughs> it was me sometimes. But uh, yeah, and but of course, uh, going along there, um, I mean, the union was a mixed bag. It, you, it was it was kind of a machine run. They had this organization called the Green Slate, but they were they were integrated. Uh, they had progressive politics in a way on the outside. And actually my union, the UAW 1183, had been really important uh, back in the late 50s and early 60s in, in, in getting the civil rights movement in Delaware. Uh, at the same time, they really kind of ruled with a heavy hand. You know, you had to go through them or you, know, you didn't go. And I, I ch challenged them and uh, and, a, and a, I, I, with a number of other people, we had we got a rank and file group going. Uh, you know, we were kind of openly socialist and things like that. And uh, and occasionally, you know, we got pretty heavy pushback. At other times, it was like people were glad that somebody was letting them know what was going on. You know, and we we wrote a review of um, of. Uh, Borier or whatever, I forgot what the author's name, but it's called Labor's Untold Story. It came out in the 50s, you know, and UE, uh, United Electrical Workers, had sponsored, had taken over the publication of it. And, uh, you know, we just talked about solidarity and we talked about racism and sexism as well because uh, uh, skilled trades uh, at, in my plant was absolutely not integrated. There were very few black people in it, no women, and there's a whole story about how they managed to do that. But it was definitely kind of an inside thing going on. And, and you know, I, I learned something about why, how unions get corrupt. And it's management. The management is more powerful than anybody else in there, more powerful than the union. And they can manipulate things so they, their boy will look good. You know, I mean, he wins grievances, money grievances, and all that stuff while everybody else gets fucked. And, uh, and he's the one who gets promoted. He gets the power in the union. And, uh, you know, UAW now has two former presidents in prison 
And uh, this guy, uh, General Holifield, this is about, you know, 12, 15 years ago, I guess, he came to our local union, uh, bringing us this shit sandwich of a two-tier contract. You know, you know what a two-tier contract is? Uh, it doesn't sound good because I don't want to be on the second tier. Yeah, that's uh, right. Uh, it means the new hires get half the pay. That's what it was. I, you know, I remember this sort of controversy where it was like, yeah, you get, yeah, the the, the first five years you get, you know, your benefits and all the, the what you guys got didn't kick in. Oh, it doesn't kick in. Uh, well, uh, not, uh, your pay really never kick. You never catch up. I mean, maybe little, but you know, it's it was against the UAW, UAW Constitution. It was against the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That's equal pay for equal work. You know, and it's just devastating to solidarity. When how? But it, it was like they just figured this is the only way we can save the union. We'll take care of the older guys, but you know, everybody else is going to get screwed. And General Holifield was on the take. He died before they could throw him in jail. His wife's in jail. You know, they paid him about, you know, Fiat Chrysler paid him a million and a half dollars. So you get me on this topic here. No, so, I think it's important. I mean, you yeah, know, so, like, as we have the same thing. So it yeah, wasn't, yeah. You, you had petty, you had petty shit when I was in there. Not big corruption, petty shit. You know, um, I mean, you know, and the, the, the committee man before I was elected to be committee man <laughs> was a loan shark. And that, that, that's pretty shitty. And, uh, you know, there were little little things here, little there, but it, it was basically they're doing a lot of their job. But one thing they didn't do was safety and health. And one thing they didn't do, at least in our plant, was to deal with discrim the discrimination really adequately. Um, but in terms of the wages and in terms of the fact, you know, you, it's a lot, of, a lot of protection. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was great to have a union there. And it was just, it's, compl it's a complicated situation. But then they they just really uh, deteriorated. At any rate, we had we had a rank and file organization. We were going to try to take them a little further, and we were radical. I mean, when this one woman, she I sort of like brought her into politics, and before I knew it, she was a hardcore communist. Man, she was driving me nuts. Congratulations! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should have been there. But she was really very brave and very in your face and uh, very successful. People loved her. And she led these campaigns to try to keep them from shutting down the uh, the cushion room because they were gonna they were gonna outsource the cushion room where they put the cushions on the on the seats, and uh, they outsourced it to somebody who made like you know minimum wage. I don't know, but uh, she she had a great fight against that, and so people loved her. And she, unfortunately, uh, you know Pam McGinnis, she died of uh, of um, uh, MS. So uh, you know. 20 years ago, tragically. Um, yeah, but, you know, so I got elected to be a committee man. She got elected to be a steward and then a committee person. And, um, you know, and so we, we had a certain amount of success and we had a certain amount of popularity, but definitely, you know, it was pretty difficult to hold on politically. Uh, later, I got appointed to a nice, cushy job. <laughs> <laughs> but union job. I mean, I was always getting union jobs, like working on the Civil Rights Committee or stuff like that. Because uh, the union, as much as they would kick my ass, they sometimes they wanted somebody who could do some of the functions of the of the union. And so, you know, it's no hard feelings. It's just politics. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just I business. I thought about it again this week because I saw a. Um, I grew up uh, over like near Richardson Park. And so oh, yeah. when, when the GM plant was, was, still, yeah. was still roaring. And so, you know, that was a big part of the community. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, you read this week they're getting ready to open the, the Amazon Fulfillment Center. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that'll be a huge, that's a huge uh, plant in that neighborhood, but it's not going to be the same uh, because the, the um, you know, the environment and the organization is just completely different. And so I think about, like, I mean, we talk a lot about organizing the working class. You mentioned it yourself. Yeah. Like, like how, how, how do we... How do we get through this sort of complicated morass, you know, because, you know, administrators are going to be ambitious and they're going to look out for themselves sometimes and not everything is going to go great, but we need some sort of rubric or some sort of way to be able to find common cause with a mass with a mass movement of workers. And I can't think of now, obviously the UAW in your time is not, you know, the, 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 the the example on the hill, but there's something to it that we have to figure out, and I don't, and I'm not, I'm not sure what it is. You're probably better placed to at least think about this stuff, but we talk about it all the time. I can recommend a book, uh, Georges Rudet. He's he was a British communist, and he wrote um, this book called uh, I think it was called Ideology and um, Ideology and Social Process. Social protest, and he basically he, he examined all these uh, radical movements in, in England mainly and other places, but but be, before the working class had fully formed, which is really great because the working class never really fully formed. You know, it's never become what what you project it to be. People just ripe to you know, you, just, you, pick, you hand them a copy of Das Kapital, they say, yeah, that's it. You know, I get it. Uh, you know, it doesn't work that way, but. Um, you know, there's very, there's very all kinds of contradictions and all. But he, he said that uh, ideology, you know, it, it comes in two pieces. One is there's the piece of ideology that comes in mother's milk, is which it's your culture, which you grow with, it's your own mythology and all this stuff, you know, what you have. And then the other part is what you pick up as you live your life. And this is and 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 then in the next generation. Some of that will be some of what, how you lived your life will become part of mother's milk, and so you know what we have to do is is radicals and revolutionaries is 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 create experiences with the working class struggling for their 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 class interests alongside them, but you can't always expect you know ideological purity in that. But you can be clear about your own politics, and part of their part of what they'll learn is like, oh, these Reds among us—they're they're the good guys. I mean, I got elected to office. I'm not sure people—you know—they might have thought of me as the Trump because I was just this big troublemaker. You know, yeah. I was going to kick their ass. You know, yeah, I think that's—I yeah. mean, that's a you know? that's a perfect example because you can take the, you can take the partisan—not partisan part—but you can take the labels away from it, and if you just sort of approach it. Uh, the way you're mentioning, you're like, oh yeah, these guys that are left are actually on our side. Well, they're the good guys, like you said. But that's the that's the trick, right? It's like um, you have to you have to convince people that you that you do have their best interest in mind without coming across. You know, you still have to meet them where they are and sort of integrate yourself and understand their struggle. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm, we're struggling with this. I mean, yeah, again, there's, we, a lot, we, there's a lot to it, but you, yeah. really, you really need to try to talk with people one-on-one. -on -one. You need to, uh, to accept their leadership and struggles and, and sometimes, you know, persuade people to accept yours. 
you know, it's a slow process. And right now, uh, and, you know, the, the le- it's really uphill in this country. Uh, you know, the left has, you know, yeah, the left, the left is kind of anathema. Well, I keep way. saying, I, my, but, my, my, the way I know. look at that is the, the countries, we have leftist comrades, but there's no left. I think, I think the, I mean, from a political standpoint, I think that the last two uh, Democratic primaries sort of show, yeah, of course. The last two Democratic primaries showed that there's really no left. There are, there are leftists that are trying to do something, but once they run up against uh, a concerted effort, whatever, you know, whether it's neoliberal or, or reactionary or whatever. Well, we're they, getting they, a little better now. Yeah. They, they, oh, it's, it's not a, hopeless. It's no, not no, hopeless. no. We're I don't want to say, oh, I do not want to say it's hopeless no. at all, but I think the, the point is that that's the next step, is I think people are getting activated. Uh, we wouldn't be where we are if they weren't. Um, but the next point is to sort of now have people join the call, you know, join the fight. And I think that's the step. That's like the union step. It's like a, I think about tenants. We don't do it a lot uh, in Wilmington at all, but like tenants groups, large tenants groups. I mean, most look, most people rent and we've we've gone. We've looked at legislation to try to get uh, tenants rights legislation and, and different things. But, you know, this is very difficult. Um, but it's, I look at that stuff the same way I look at a union. This is how it's forces. No, it is. It is. Yeah. It's a union of tenants. Absolutely. Uh, actually, I was just at the, um, uh, uh, Democratic Socialists of America convention. I was a Delaware de- delegate and I attended this workshop. Actually, we actually, it was a, a, a fine, a, a final plenary where this woman was giving a kind of a motiv- motivational speak speech and she was vol- involved in tenant organizing. And it was like really dynamic. And I was like, oh yeah. I mean, they, I mean, the, the 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 CP used to do that, and that was a big part of their activity. And I, I remember one time I was talking to this woman, and she said she used to live in the um, high rises in uh, in New York City. And I said, I heard they had a big big communist uh, organization there in that time. He says, oh yes, when they told me they had eliminated anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union, they had me. I said. You were a communist? Oh yes. <laughs> she was like about ninety years old. Yeah. And uh, but they they have some of those uh, uh, tenements in New York City. They have like the hammer and sickle uh, inscribed yeah. on the side, you know, and stuff. So, but so that's that's a past thing, and it really is something to come again. But, but let me just say something that kind of relates to my book. You know, yeah, I'm full of all this Marx and all this. I've read my Marx and I've read my Marxist texts of various sorts, but I, I really. Th- do believe, and I argue this with uh, my comrades in the uh, DSA, that you really have to see things in, in different through different uh, lenses. You know, uh, I mean, in my book here, you don't find much marks. Uh, you you do find concepts of of that. We all seem so different, but you know, actually, we're all alike. You know, <laughs> to, to put it real simply. Uh, or that you know that that uh, the hu- humanity is a braided river. It's it's never it's never come from like a single root. It's always come from all these different uh, uh, streams. Uh, and you know how a braided river works. You know it comes together and then it divides for moments or millennia and in torrents or trickles. You know that's how humanity works. You know in our culture and our language and our supposed ethnicity and all this. You know, so we're all we're all connected with each other this way, and um, 
And so what seems, you know, what seems uh, so distant, uh, I mean, you know, here, my, uh, my epigraph is taken from a Catholic. I'm an atheist, but, you know, hey, you know, I, I've always worked with a lot of religious people in my activism, and this is Daniel Berrigan, you know, SJ, stu soldier of Jesus, right? I mean, I think he left the thing that got married. But um, he, he, this was from his uh, something like Commandments for the Peaceable. He wrote this in the 60s. In times of crisis, the real question is, how am I like others? To explore the question is to form communities of survival or of sacrifice. So I mean, part of that is that you know, the other can be like, you know, people of different ethnicities, different gender conformances, and, or um, different languages, but also, you know, the guy on the other side of the barricades, or the people you think on the other side of the barricades, or, um, or, the, or your, your comrade that you think is wrong, you know, and, and is, is like, you know... <laughs> It needs to be purged, you know. It, you know, or or the sa the saints and the sinners. They all have a lot more in common than, than they like to admit. And um, so, I mean, I think you know what you, what you think the other people are doing. You may be doing in certain ways yourself. I mean, you're all human, you know, and we're all bound by our own human uh, frailties. And uh, so, in a, in a way, that's partly what this is about. So, you know, my, uh, my friend uh, Douglas Murray, oh, he, oh, this isn't, this is the, it's not on this, this is the, uh, the preview mo uh, copy. He just said, it's like, it's where everything looks like everybody's coming from a completely different place, and then they all find out that, well, maybe not. You know, so my hero, Jacobo, he's, he's a little bit of a Parsifal, you know, a fool made wise through pity, you know. And he, the pity he gets of it is the pitiful situation he ends up in Guantanamo prison, right? He's just this naive guy from Ecuador. He's of mixed uh, ethnicity. Uh, he wants to uh, come to the USA and chase the American dream. And things get very complicated very fast for him. And, of course, he, he you know, you, you got the background of 9-11 and all this stuff going on. And uh, he eventually, he, he, you know, he goes to work in Rehoboth. Some Russian steals his pay um, and his passport. Uh, this actually happened to somebody. Well, I have a couple of uh, in-laws who are Ecuadorian. And they, they came and they worked in, um, not Rehoboth, but um, um, oh, one of these other beaches in New, in New Jersey, So uh, whose name I'm forgetting. But um, they told me about this guy who had his pay stole by, stolen by some Russian. So that's a, that's a good thing to fit in there. But uh, so he goes, he, um, you know, he, he, he ends up uh, sitting on the corner with the Mexicans trying to get day work. And he gets a job as a chicken catcher. Now, I know some background of the kitchen, chicken catching in Delaware. Uh, it, it used to only be done by black people. You know? Well, actually, all the poultry plants were full of black people, but they got sick of it. I mean, I had a good friend of mine, Jimmy Miller. He was a fellow uh, committee man at, at Chrysler. And he told me, you know, they don't do that. They don't want to do that shit anymore. They don't want their kids to do that shit anymore. And so the immigrants, the Mexican immigrants and Guatemalans and all that, they do it now. Uh, but they did have one little corner of the business that was left to uh, 
you know, uh, uh, black people, and uh, but they were stealing their pay. They were, you know, they weren't weren't paying their, f their full pay and all that, and they weren't paying an overtime pay, and they had a lawsuit, and uh, they won. They got all this back pay and everything. So then they they brought in these chicken catcher machines. <laughs> Yeah. Although they didn't always work, so some they don't work. You got to go out and pick up these Mexicans on the corner, uh, or or black people on the corner, and um, or Jacobo. <laughs> yeah. Now, having worked on the assembly line, well, I, I, well, I had an insight what it's I, like I, to do I city have to say, work. Before we before we go get ahead. there, because that that was what I was gonna, I, I because of the connection with the auto plant, uh, in in this the, the 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 few poems that are, I guess he moved from uh, sort of like a. A job where I was wielding a knife to a job where he didn't have to do that, and and there's a couple poems about that that I think are pretty cool because it sort of brings in um, just the the detail of each move, yes, uh, and also just the grander thing of just this monotonous assembly work, yeah. Um, but before that, I wonder because you you, you brought up the, the 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 priest that's uh, that that leads off one, one of the things one of the things that leads off the book and. So you, 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 you did spend time in Ecuador teaching high school, I think, right? That's correct. Um, how long, what, what was the circumstances? Because when, when I think of very radical sort of, uh, you know, uh, liberation theology, uh, Catholic, Roman Catholic priests, you know, you, you think about Central and South America. And so it reminded me to ask you sort of what the circumstances were and what your experience was in, in Ecuador. Well, um, you know, I, I was working at an, an elite public, a private school. And uh, my wife and I, you know, we, while I was in grad school, I met somebody who had worked overseas, and I thought, that sounds interesting. So my wife, uh, Joan French, and I <clears throat> decided to see if, see if we can get a job. The first year, we weren't able to. second year, we sort of really made it a campaign, and we were hired uh, to work in Ecuador at Academia Cotopaxi in Quito, the capital. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, there were a lot of interesting things going on there, especially indigenous struggles. And, and of course, you know, like a lot of South American countries, you had, you had an elite, a corrupt elite, a landowning elite, a banking elites. And, um, and they were just stealing the country blind. And, uh, and it was unsustainable theft. You know, they weren't leaving enough for something to happen. It almost seemed like, well, this country's just too poor anyway. It wouldn't make any difference. Well, it, it really did make a difference. Um, and I, uh, in the process, I got, I got to know some people in an, an indigenous village of, of Peguche. Um, uh, one of the teachers at our school married um, a fellow uh, from uh, uh, Peguche, and we were the, the godparents of, of their wedding. In, in a lot of Latin American, Hispanic cultures, a godparent is not only of a person, a child being born, but also of a wedding. Que uh, viva los padrinos, viva! You know, and everybody drinks. And uh, but I got to know a lot about this this indigenous culture, and I got close to his whole family, you know. And they they were very kind to me, you know, welcomed me with open arms, and I got to know people in the community and. Talk to him, and I, you know, and I started doing some reporting and writing too. I mean, I, you know, I interviewed the head of, um, you know, Kone, which was the biggest indigenous organization one time, and, uh, you know, when, one of the things I asked him was, you know, all the all the mestizos, so to speak, who call themselves white, you know, 
they eat roughly the same food as the indigenous. They have the same music, although it's, it's a little hokier and it's with different instruments. And, uh, and they have the similar accents. And, uh, and he says, yeah. <laughs> and they're all trying to be more Catholic than the Pope. <laughs> Just, but they're all puro indio. And it's true. A lot of times the difference between an indigenous and a white was you cut off your trenza, your, your pigtail, and you move to the city. And, um, you know, because it's like life was rough out there. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they had these wonderful, you know, it's like, it was just terrific people. The music was great. They were friendly to me. Um, I mean, occasionally they weren't friendly, but sometimes they were resentful of a gringo. But, you know, that goes with the territory. Um, anyway, I learned a lot about them. And also, there were a lot of Lebanese in Ecuador. They were very big in business and, and uh, things like and and uh, politics. And uh, lo and behold, later on in our life, I get a job in uh, Lebanon. And uh, ju just just after 9-11, just as they're cooking up the um, uh, the war in uh, in Iraq and uh, well, not quite Afghanistan. They kind of delayed what they needed to do in Afghanistan and went to war in Iraq. And um, and, and that was a little tense at that time. Uh, it was a little tense. What uh, was the uh, yeah. what was the relationship uh, between Lebanon and Israel at that time? That must oh, been, they hated it, Israel. I know. I mean, was it hot? I mean, I know they've they've gotten into they've they've well, shot a, they've uh, shot at each other a few all right, times. All right. In the last. Well, <laughs> we were we were there. We left before uh, the latest big uh, Hezbollah Israeli war. Right. Okay. But that features a lot in my book. Yeah. Well, that's why I yeah. asked because I know that because I a... knew because I met people who whose whose family. I mean, half the people in the country supported Hezbollah. Because they had driven, they were part of the resistance, uh, and oftentimes they just referred to them as the resistance. The, the, the Communist Party and Hezbollah were the resistance, and they had driven out, you know, the Israelis that had invaded three or four times, and they, they, they really hated it. Although, it's interesting enough, half the supporters of Hezbollah, uh, half the of half of the Christians in the country, mostly Maronite Catholics, supported Hezbollah. And half of them were fascists. <laughs> so it gets complicated. Uh, in later years, as Hibla kind of lost its, um, it lost some of the trust that the people had in it. But it was a little bit of an artificial trust, too. I mean, n nobody trusted each other at all. They'd had a war for a civil war for 15 years. You know, I'm teaching kids whose parents have been murdering each other wholesale. You know, uh, and it all ended in a big kind of payoff to all these warlords and stuff. But they they really, you'd see uh, Israeli jets would fly over all the time. And Israel, there was also a problem that Israel had planted all these uh, mines uh, near the border. And, you know, every week some kid would be getting his legs blown off and stuff like that. And Israel would not tell them, you know, where where is this stuff? And Israel... Had also carted away a lot of topsoil, and they were uh, they were uh, you know basically any river that was you know up rivers in Israel they, they would be cutting it off, and um, so there was a lot of you know a lot of hostility, a lot of anguish, and uh, yeah. Uh, although you know it was interesting because uh, you know I I I taught. Uh, I, one of the stories I taught in my English classes, I was chair of the English department, uh, 
was um, the Magic Barrel. Uh, no, I'm blocking on the writer's name. Jewish writer, great Jewish writer. Uh, and it's a wonderful story. I mean, it's just just terrific. And you know, when he talks, at one point he's talking a little bit about how he um, Jews always suffer. You know, and this this is a person who's had experience of the pogroms in in uh, Russia in the old days, and so you know we talked about this. Uh, you know, in 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 Lebanon they had another thing. They they had these like eight or nine themes that everything was supposed to be around, and one of them was like the the uh, the, the experience of exile and the and uh, which of course Jews experienced as well as um, you know uh, Lebanese because a lot of Lebanese are there's a big Lebanese diaspora of course. And uh, and and the pog, you know, they talked about the pogroms that the Jews faced, and you know, we went along fine. Although I know in somebody else's class, when he talked about this stuff, he got in trouble. Some, some kids saw this as a good opportunity to give it to the teacher, you know, and uh, so that didn't go too well. <laughs> so you know, I dealt dealt with these kinds of issues, and I had a, a one Christian kid once told me, you know, we ought to, we really need to support the Jews because they control all the money in the world. Yeah, that's so. Uh, we call we call that doing tropes. Yeah. Well, one last yeah one last anecdote though. Um, and I had these. I had some really wonderful students that I was teaching about American legislative systems. I took them to Paris to do this um, this thing where they practice doing debates and stuff. Any rate, they um, they took me to the old uh, old uh, um, synagogue. And it was it was was it was disused at that point, but it had been it had been a Boy Scout place. But before that, it was a it, it was a synagogue right in um, in Beirut. And so there used to be a lot more Jews in in Lebanon, and they're virtually all gone now. And that's not a good thing. Um, and there's a, a maybe a few left up in some Druze village in the mountains, uh, but no. And so uh, you know, it's not it's not it's not a purely uh, anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist, anti-the guys who, you know, really fucked us up and invaded. Uh, but, of course, they were the only ones who fucked up uh, Lebanon. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to humanity of these people, and I wanted, of Jews, and I want, wanted my kids to sort of under, have this side of it, in spite of the fact I also sympathize with their hostility to Israel and what all they've been through, yeah. you know. Yeah, I think it's it, it's it's so interesting because both of those things, both the indigenous movement in South America in general, and we're seeing a resurgence uh, in Peru, um, in Chile, mm -hmm. uh, in Bolivia. Um, we keep we, we put the Wipala flag up, which is the, the flag of the indigenous people, the Andes. And, Wipalo. Yes, uh, and and it's the same when you think about. Some of these uh, organizations in the Middle East that they call terrorists—they're really just—it's complicated. They're—they're they're the resistance. It is. I mean, ha Hamas, is. Hamas, and the Gaza Strip runs the schools. Yeah. So it's like how, what? It's 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 a lot more complicated than than. Yeah, yeah. But well, that, that's well, that's something that the book, while it's uh, you yeah, know, yeah, it does deal with some it, of that. It deals with a lot of that complication. I do. A lot of those, uh, you, you know, those paradoxes. I do, I do deal with that. I do deal with that. You know. Uh, Indeed, yeah. Uh, I've got a couple poems about, you know, Hezbollah and, and um, the Taliban, 
know? Yeah, I find it's, and it's people in in Guantanamo prison. Yeah, it's a, it's especially poignant uh, when there's I, I don't know if you'd call them uh, interludes or interregnum or, or just some expository prose presented in sort of a in sort of an official administrative military way. Yes, about yeah. sort of like military intelligence and like as the story's going along, what what these what these people are are taking from it, like what they're gleaning, what their military intelligence is telling them, right? Which is completely wrong. It's all wrong all the time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it really it really sort of captures that dynamic of like this paradox where somebody else's perspective, you know, this is this is really what's going on, and because of your experience and the travels of the character, you're able to get it in a lot of different a lot of different spots. Yeah, it was it was it was really cool. Yeah, can you? We want to read one. You want sure. to read? You want what to read? Like, what uh, like I, read? I, the 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 one where it describes the uh, the, the the chicken line, the, the <laughs> chicken processing. You like chickens? Well, again, I, I'm chicken only catcher. I, yeah, I'm only going to say it because or I, or the one where he's inside and he's cutting up chickens. That one. Oh, that's that's, uh, that's yeah. a little longer, but I'd be happy to read it. I love well, it. Well, maybe read read half the half no, you no, like. No, you're going to read the whole damn. Yeah, read thing. the whole. You thing. can cut it out if you want, but I no, this is staying. I man. love this book. And again, I think because it because it. Uh, it's sort of we. It was one of the ones that I was wondering whether we would excerpt or not. Um, we didn't, but again, it, it goes to sort of your experience with this kind of work. Sure. How how sort of I don't know. I don't want to say how, but just how generally workers are not understood. Like we know people are in those plants. You go to the beach, you see the chicken plant. That's right. Uh, you know people are going in there. What are they doing? Who are those people? Like, are you not paying attention to them? Like, and, and I think this yeah. um, this sort of puts it paints it in a really uh, well, interesting way. There is a little Marx there in in the sense that Mark, Marx, you know, in the first chapter of Capital, he, he talks about you know the division of labor and about how um, about people look at commodities as uh, a, as a relationship between things when it's actually a social relationship. There's people behind commodities. You know, they, each commodity is the congealed labor of number of human beings, you know, but they think, they, they don't really imagine it that way. They, you know, that, who makes it? Oh, gremlins, fairies, you know, um, Santa's helpers, you know. Flash fiction, Hokobo gets the good job. I spent the first two weeks disjointing wings. Among a hundred helmeted and plastic-aproned associates, they called us, arranged in files either side of several ringing chicken disassembly lines, I would crimp my right wrist up to grip the slimy knife handle with the most delicate muscles of my thumb and middle finger, then, with index finger atop the blade, I'd stab through the shoulder while yanking the wing down with my other hand, flip the neck back with a blade and rotate the bird on its conical pedestal to slice and yank the other wing. Next down the line, others made the final cuts to render the wings pretty much the way they looked before they're dredged, deep-fried, saturated in gory sauce and served up to beach bums who never gave my aching finger joints and wrists a second thought. Each morning I awoke with fingers swollen stiff, every point of rotation locked like the dried-out water wheel back home in Peguche. At the last station on this line was the good job. No knives. By the time the bird got there, there were the breasts, glistening gray, pink mounds and pimpled yellow sacks, already cut loose and dangling by a thread of sinew or skin. All it took was a little tug, and they dropped to the white conveyor. <laughs> tug, drop, tug, drop, that's for me. 
I told the foreman that Friday morning, and he said, Okay, this was the life. Half the work, twice the time to breathe. No more worrying when I'd get my yank and slice backwards and stab that blade into my thumb joint before I'd felt it drive clean through, spoiling a whole line of chickens with pulsing spurts of blood. I'd found my home in the American food chain, and as I continued tugging and dropping, I began to contemplate the mechanized wonder of automated chicken catchers, controlled atmosphere stunning conveyor chains with chickens in shackles, plucking machines, and systematic dismembering and packaging for the markets, and a miracle of efficiently distributed labor except for my job, which was easy and left me half the time to daydream. The only annoyance was a negligible twinge beneath my forearm. After lunch, the rhythm became intoxicating, and I had a vision like a sort of mandala that monks make with colored sand. Golden streams spread from the spark of creation out to the web of stardust, evolving into elements and galaxies, blue and magenta, spinning planets with drifting continents, braided rivers and living beings microbial to mammal, trade routes of sailors, escape routes, and after an hour that negligible negligible twinge had turned into an intensifying burn driven farther up both forearms with each tug and drop, but I kept my head in the mandala where my co-workers from Mexico and Guatemala traveled at atop rail cars, through deserts, or packed in U-Hauls along Interstate 5, while overhead were migration paths of flying birds that divided into species that cluck and scratch the ground and get gathered up by chicken catchers from Ecuador and served up to beach bums watching football or football on television networks and broadcasting through transoceanic cables and satellite signals and breaking for ads to sell Coca-Cola or cerveza or chicken wings, I began to wish I was still cutting because that intensifying burn in my forearms had turned into fiery veins of lava from thumbnails to elbows and the pain sweat was spreading salt in my spreading salt in my eyes and a screaming wind was blowing my mandala away and it was a woman crying me hija mi hija and the foreman said immigration is here there is nothing we can do nuestra señora i, I will stop <laughs> because that's what you really want. That, that's what I. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah you got. It. Yeah, that that was that was that was excellent. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got. That you was can't one of my. Write favorite. that unless you know what it's like to work on an assembly. Line. Yeah, and again, and, and it's the bigger thing of of sort of getting the easier job, and um, obviously how it how it ends up. Uh, it wasn't easier. He he, he uh, it wasn't easier, and um, and and at the end of it, uh, he's 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 getting ready to be on the run. Um, but yeah, I, I I thought that was great. Well, the last thing I want to talk about before the fun stuff is just um, so I I know that you've uh you've gotten into uh organizing with the DSA and some of our comrades a lot more, uh how and and we've been trying to just grow not only DSA, Working Families Party, Network Delaware, uh, both sort of community organizing but also political campaign support yeah a whole lot of good stuff a whole lot of good stuff so i'm just interested in um you know you've 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 been uh around uh a while me too and and just your sense of i I said earlier that there are leftists but no no leftist movement no left in delaware but i feel like there's going to be soon a left in delaware um i i think that there's indications that there are going to be little power shifts and, and things that are happening that I don't think have happened before. Um, so I'm just, yeah, I'm just interested in your, um, I guess your, your, your state of state of leftism in the state. Uh, I'm encouraged. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I, I think there is movement and not just because we got the, the DSA 
as a party going, but about just these organizations that you mentioned. These are all, you know, progressive forces. They're all sort of left part forces. I mean, it's not only them. I mean, a lot, lots of people who don't, you know, who aren't touching on, you know, Marxist or that kind of politics too much. They're, they're really looking to see the world seriously change uh, for the better. And along the same lines, all of us would pretty well uh, agree on, you know, and, and, and tired of all this piecemeal stuff. I mean, you know, I was, uh, I was active uh, back in the late 90s. I was a chair of an organization that was trying to get voting rights for former felons. And, you know, I worked on this for about three years, and it was a, it was a process that had been going on for over 20 years. And this guy used to work for Chrysler, a little troublemaker. He was Al Plant, and he was a state representative, and, and he had been trying to get this going through. It would require a, a constitutional amendment. And so we had 40 organizations, uh, a coalition. And I worked on this work. They say, you, you know, you work on it and work on it. Never, never say that, though. Never say while you're lobbying with all these people in, in Dover that it's a racist criminal justice system. You know? But, you know, we work and work and work. And finally, finally, we get this change, you know. And um, so some former felons can vote. And after they pay off their fines. Uh, and after, you know, all every kind of piece of their sentence is over, all probation, parole, blah, 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 you know, and then you can maybe vote. And arguably, uh, in the ensuing years, there were more people who couldn't vote than there were then, you know, and it took another 15 years for Al Plant's uh, widow, Hazel Plant, and some other people to keep pushing and pushing until you you got rid of this, uh, you know, poll tax kind of stuff with all these fines and all this stuff. But I, I don't know whether they ever eliminated the, the limitations. You couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't get a part. A, uh, you couldn't vote if you had uh, committed a sex crime, if you committed manslaughter, murder, or if you had been a public official and you took a bribe. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, we're still working on that kind of. We're still working on fines and fees. We got oh, we got yeah. expungement, uh, uh, automatic expungement. I think in some fashion this that, that's this right. term. That's but right. but yeah, we're still we're still but doing it's like, it. Like, wait a minute, all that stuff is racist crap. It really is. That's got to go, you know. And there's there's no, there's you know we really got to name it for what it is, and say and and get a lot of people going together. Says that simply has to stop. Like we were talking earlier about this thing with these. Uh, this business of, 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 of that you couldn't get marijuana legalized because these guys were claiming uh, right. it's giving business uh, money and it it's the, the social the social social equity uh, yeah aspect. yeah the social equity uh, licenses you know it's like they they need to have we need to rip them a new asshole this is this is outrageous and it's like we need to call it for what it is you know it's like it's I, I'm tired of being patient. And so, all right, we may not win everything at once, but we got to name what it is what we want and tell the people all over the place, here's what, here's what you really want, isn't it? And that's what we're saying we, we should have. We should have. These, are, these should be our rights. We should have universal uh, health care. We, you know, for, and we should have equity in mental health and drug addiction and all this stuff. And drugs should be legal, basically, and just sort of managed as a social, you know, kind of complication. Uh, you know, and, um, you know, we should, you know, young families, poor families should have to help with their kids. I mean, they, they, you've got to have it. You know, let's do it. And um, 
you know, and, and we got to, and this whole, the whole bullshit in jail, you, you, you know, the, the Sentex, Sentencing uh, Accountability Commission, you know, will tell you the statistics on who's in prison. And you'll look in there and say, God, half these people are violent offenders. They define all drug offenders as violent offenders. We can't let these people out of jail. They're a bunch of dangerous thugs. Well, not necessarily. Some people maybe, but you know, it's it's just it's it's horrendous. And really, you know, you look when you look at the repeated assaults, the, the repeated trauma that uh, you know African American people of of Delaware have dealt with. You know, have seen their city split apart seven different ways. You know, uh, seeing you know. I'll tell you something that's really embarrassing. You know, it's like all that money after the first after the first bank collapse and all that. You know, they sent all this money to Delaware to to help people with uh, with the uh, remediation, all that. They and they gave it to the attorney general, <laughs> and they you know, and he sat on it, and he diverted it, and it didn't get into people's hands. And and then they yeah they distributed a little bit to like the top tier uh, uh, nonprofits. You know, but the people who could really do the job, like like people like uh, uh, Darlene Battle, he said, "No, you got to go out to get to, get to the people, and it's got to be people people they trust because they're all scared shitless that they're going to lose their home, and they don't open their mail because it's all bad news. You need somebody from the community to go there and says, there's help. We got money for you.' They wouldn't do it, you know. So I'm sick of all that. I'm just sick of it, and um, you know, it's time it's it, it's time for a revolution." Now, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not a I'm not a terrorist. I'm a peaceful guy. I want the democratic <laughs> democratic road to revolution. revolution. Democratic but we got to say what we want. Well, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. And I'll just I'll I'll point this out because finally, in in some fashion, it was still you know means tested and very clunky to roll out. But during the COVID pandemic, the government was able to get money out to people still trying to get. Yeah. Uh, money out to people for rental assistance and other things, but that's just slow. just, that's, just slow. that's very slow. The, the, but the child small business, the went child, fast. the child, the, of course. Well, because if you if you notice, you know, we have a mechanism to get money to businesses through the Fed by pushing a button. There's no mechanism to do that with regular people. That's by design. But but when we did get that money out, if you look at just poverty rates, child poverty, poverty by yeah. all kinds of different chances. It improved drastically over Absolutely. the last eighteen months, and yes. the only reason it did is because they just gave people money. That's all. Oh, it's amen, not amen. complicated, but everybody. But uh, as you said when you were talking about, um, you isn't know, that a little bit of economism? <laughs> yeah, when you're talking about like uh, the, the, the restoring voting rights to felons, it's like, well, have they paid all of their fees? Did they live here? Have they had? Not, did they have? Did they not smoke marijuana for the last year? Did they not do this? We have to think about people's humanity and think about. The universal nature of our of our community and sort of how we're, we're all running together and running apart because looking to looking the neoliberal idea is to try to get this get this money and find like the, the few people you think is gonna think and then that money just goes to the people who are the best connected yeah. things have to be universal you have to see the universal humanity and all of your neighbors and across your community and 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 just and and it's a whole different it's a whole different perspective. Yeah, you know what's up. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. So now we're going to move into the fun part of this okay. of the show. So I don't know if you've seen this. I have. I only have it in galley form. So I have this. I have this book in galley form. It's called. It's called Cool Verse. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've Christ, seen this. No. Look at this thing. This. <laughs> this. This. This is hand. This is hand. <laughs> 
This is uh, Bert's. Uh, so this like this was written in 1961. This is a lot of Bert's juvenilia from from back in the day. So I'm gonna just I'm, I'm gonna spin through this and just just pick one out. Here we go. Here here we go. This is called. I'm so sorry, Bert. This is called. This, this is gonna hurt. I this know. This is embarrassing. This is this is not that bad. Come on, you, come on, Bert. This was written on the 26th of August. 1961. I wasn't born. You were born. Take five. Clickety, uh, clickety click, said the mutton chops as they tapped out a beat while Dave Brubeck vamped from his silver seat. Then the dish made hay with the spoons and the coot flew over the moon and the tune was over. The jam gone all too soon. That's good. That's good. I like that. Well, this has a story, you know. Uh, my, I didn't know this guy didn't really associate with him at school, but I wrote this book of cool verse and all my mates wrote terrible comments in it because schoolboys are cruel to each other. So anyway, I forgot about this fucking book. A few weeks ago, he contacts me. He must have been stalking me on Facebook or something. He found me. He lives in Scotland now. And he said, I'm clearing out my shit because I'm getting old, but I want to send you cool verse because this was your book. And it was this book written in a school notebook which was my initial early poetry. Couldn't believe it. I'd forgotten half of it. Yeah, here's here's some here's some here's some schoolmate comments. Um, so Sue uh, Sue said, "Why not write a book?" Uh, Thelma Brown said, "Watch your language." <laughs> <laughs> that was a girl this, I was trying to date. Yeah, <laughs> but this is I, when you gave me this, and I'm like, you know, Philip's coming in. You know, we're going to talk about cool verse right now. I didn't realize, but anyway, thank you. For not you're you're welcome. It. I I thought we would have I thought we'd have a little fun at, at, at Bert's expense, but it was actually it actually makes you look better, which now I that, yeah, that didn't better. work right. It, it didn't work. It worked opposite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, actually, Philip did um, publish me for the first time in a publication the other day in Dream Streets. Yeah. Ah. yeah. Some of my text frantic poetry. Ah, so you've been and you've been working on it your whole life as well. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm yeah, out. yeah. Well, we I'm, wanted edgy stuff, and his stuff. Uh, fit well, right I'm I'm fi filed for put text frantic verse in the Urban Dictionary, so it becomes official. Uh, someday. You know, someday. It'll take a while. It's a bureaucratic organization. Have you looked at the Urban Dictionary? Do you really want something in there? Well, I mean, there's it's not there. It might as well be somewhere. Yeah. Well, that's it, it's not going to make the Oxford Dictionary, believe me. <laughs> Folks, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to hang out here, but you're going to leave. Um, can I tell them where they can buy this book? Well, we are going to do that. You want to tell them? You tell them. That's a good idea. You tell them where to buy it because oh, when we excerpted it, well, I made it very clear not to buy it from Amazon because you right. also make it very clear. Yeah, well, not to buy but it from they will—they will get their share. And if you buy—if you do buy it from Amazon, leave leave a, a review. However, um, you know, go to your local bookstore and ask them to get it for you. And this is the best way. Now, it is being carried locally here in Delaware and in Hocassin. Hocassin Bookshelf uh, has a couple copies. Uh, a friend of mine went in, uh, to get one, and they ordered one from him. They didn't know it was on their shelves. They forgot. So uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what that tells you, but they're very nice people. But any any of your, uh, in your, your local bookshops, go there. There's also a website called um, bookshop.org. And they work with, they support local bookstores. And so they give a little kickback to a consortium of local bookstores if you get it from them. And they also sell my books on a, at a slight discount. 
And so, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're, it's a great way to do it. And But at any rate, go to your local bookstore, ask them, uh, you know, to get this book, Hokobo the Turco, a novel in verses. Uh, you know, I have a website, philipbanowski.com, but you don't, you're not going to remember how to spell it, so I won't. Refer to well, it. we're going to link to it in the show notes. Okay, okay, great. It'll all be linked. It'll Thank all you. be linked. No problem. Uh, Philip, I really appreciate you coming in. Oh, thanks for bringing me in. It was fun. I didn't know I'd be speechifying so much on politics. Well, I, we definitely speechify on politics. That's what this is all about. <laughs> Got to. So you guys know where to go. Uh, Patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. You know, throw us uh, five, ten dollars a month. Help us uh, continue our work. Uh, I did want to uh, to mention that the Delaware call today uh, ran a uh, an exclusive, a breaking news exclusive. Uh, we scooped every other uh, media outlet and uh, reported that uh, Medina Wilson Anton will be filing a, uh, a an official ethics complaint in the Delaware House against Gerald Brady for being the person we knew Gerald Brady was, but now we have it on record. Um, so yeah, we were able to break a little story. I mean, we're publishing poetry excerpts. We're breaking. We're breaking news. Uh, we're going to be publishing hopefully uh, a Carl Stomberg essay about organizing in the suburbs. Um, so yeah, um, if that's something you're into, we're trying to make it very uh, a lot of variety and a lot of cool stuff. So go to DelawareCall.com. There's a donate button there if you uh, if you're so inclined. And that one is actually a, a nonprofit tax deductible one. So whichever you prefer, I prefer you donate to both, but hey, that's just me. Uh, Bert, thank you for allowing us to read a cool verse. I appreciate it. You will it. pay the price. Never mind. Okay. Uh, uh, Carl, thanks for riding the knobs, and uh, Philip again, uh, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me on this. I had a lot of fun. Cool. Everyone, uh, left is best. Left is best.